verse 18. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly, the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose, and the report of this went through all the district. Now, Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, my Lord, my rock, and my redeemer. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you can grab a seat. So we are in, if anyone is trying to keep count, the 21st message through the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew two years, but we're going to put in several other series as well. We're about to start a different one. And what we're going to look in this 21st sermon, what we're going to see, rather, is a miracle within a miracle, a miracle sandwich, if you will. A miracle on the way to a miracle. Now, the key players outside of our Lord himself in this text would be, first of all, a man grieving but believing over a dead daughter. We know that he is Jairus from the Gospel of Mark, the ruler of the synagogue. The second person we're going to see is a woman with chronic bleeding who probably feels, for reasons I'll disclose, as good as dead. And what is going to be key for us to see, to get the big idea of what the Lord has for us this morning, is that in both cases, faith precedes the miracle. Y'all with me? Faith precedes the miracle. So, in the case of the ruler, he believes that if Jesus can only lay his hand on his dead daughter, she will live, and guess what? That's what happens. And the woman with bleeding believes that if only she can get to Jesus, she will be made well. That's exactly what happens, and that's explicitly what Jesus affirms, as we just saw when he said, daughter, your faith has made you well. So here's what I'm trying to emphasize. In both cases, faith preceded Jesus coming to them, right? And not only that, actually faith prompted Jesus to come to them. Now the reality is, I think that we have a really hard time hammering home the truth that Jesus responds to faith. That's so important, I wanna say that again. I think we have a really hard time hammering home the truth that Jesus in fact responds to faith. 
And there are three reasons for that, I believe. Reason number one, we have a hard time really hammering home the truth. Jesus' response to faith is this. It's because the, of the abuse of name it and claim it garbology. That's garbage theology. We're like, I don't want to be like those cats. And so the slingshot pendulum effect, we then move into absolute passivity in matters of believing God. Second of all, and I think this is probably more prevalent amongst us, is this. Our present or past experience. We were in a pickle, we had a great need, we pled with God even perhaps for a long season, and he seemingly did not come through. So this stuff about Jesus responding to faith, I don't know. So we build upon that passivity and we actually go into a fatalism. And then third of all, however we get there, whether it's one or two or both, we have developed the skill of putting a neat little theological bow on our passivity and faithfulness in the abuse of reformed theology. We say, well, God is sovereign. Whatever he's gonna do, he's gonna do. Whatever will be, will be. Que sera, sera, right? And in actuality, we become functional deist. Oh, we believe that God is real, but he really wouldn't want to intervene, at least for me. And as a result, church, our faith often bears little resemblance to the expectant faith that we see in the pages of Holy Scripture. Maybe you've been there before. Most of us have, right? I certainly have, and on more than one occasion. Maybe you're there right now. Now, the upside of this, a good thing is not to sugarcoat this. This is, this is true. Not to sugarcoat its reality. By acknowledging it, that's a good thing, I should say. But what's not good is to sugarcoat the fact that sometimes we are actually walking in dead, fatalistic, passive, non-expectant faith. We, we ought to be man enough, we ought to be woman enough to confess that in that moment, we are making a decision on a foundational question. Namely, am I God? Thank you, young man, <laughs> if there was any uh, worry about that. But we are faced with that question. Finally, we got somebody speaking back this morning. This is a good thing. Sit this man up front. <laughs> I'm, I'm faced with this question. Am I God? Or is God God? What I mean is this. What I mean is this. In those moments, will I choose to submit to what I think, to what I feel, or even to what I've experienced about this matter of Jesus responding to faith, namely, he doesn't really? Playing God, right? Or will I choose to submit to what God says in hundreds of places in scripture, such as Psalm 50, verse 15, 
Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will glorify me. And when we, 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 when we do the first, when we do the former, when we play God, not only does passivity settle in, not only does fatalism settle in, we actually join the ranks of people like um, Marcion and Thomas Jefferson. Marcion was an early church heretic. And Thomas Jefferson, they both, you know what they did? They, they literally cut out of the scriptures things they didn't agree with, believe in, or like. In the case of Thomas Jefferson, for instance, it was his denial of the supernatural, so he cut out everything that had to do with miracles. Now, we may not cut that out, but when we're not believing that Jesus responds to faith, we're actually cutting a whole lot of stuff out of the Bible. You know that. Maybe not literally, but functionally. So, for instance, 650 prayers in the Bible. Should we just snip, snip, cut them out? What do you think? 450 answers to those 650 prayers in the Bible. Should we just, I don't know, cut them out? Take an exacto knife? Take the whole book of Psalms, the Psalter, 150 chapters of prayer. Should we just cut that out? And by the way, you will find in those 150 chapters, I've been reading a lot of them at once in this month, there's a lot of, how long, Lord? Where are you, Lord? You're gonna do anything, Lord, which itself is an expression of expectant faith. Should we cut out the Lord's Prayer, the pattern Jesus gave us? Should we do that? Should we cut out the 25 examples of Jesus Christ praying that we see in the Gospels? Shall we cut out the 41 references Paul has in his epistles to prayer? Shall we cut out that awesome section in the book of Revelation which says that our prayers are ascending to heaven like incense and one day God is gonna move in power on all of them? Should we cut that out? Or, or, or forget prayers. How about examples in scripture as we're gonna see this morning where people come directly to Jesus Christ in his days on earth in flesh and they plead with him and ask him, should we cut that out? And I think we would all say theologically, no, 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 this is a closed canon, this is all the word of God. But functionally, maybe we have reduced the canon. And so what I wanna preach you this morning is this, this, this simple and yet transformative theme. Jesus responds to faith. We say that with me? Jesus responds to faith. Now, I don't know about you. I feel like I need this probably more than anybody, and maybe you feel that way. We're gonna, we're gonna craft our walk through this text around three words as we look at how Jesus responds to faith. Number one, we're gonna look, we're, we're gonna, under the heading, desperation. Desperation's actually a good place to be. Number two, we're gonna see deliverance. And number three, finally, a display. Desperation, deliverance, display. Now, let's dive in. In verse 13, as we just read, desperation drives this ruler to come in and kneel before Jesus. 
What's interesting is the word kneel is the word proskuneo. It means to lay forward or to lay towards something. It is sometimes translated worship. In effect, this synagogue ruler Jairus, we know from the Gospel of Mark, is, is worshiping the Lord. So he comes in, he kneels before him, he proskuneos, and then he makes a bold, faith-filled request. My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she, not, she might live, she will live. That's what he says. He's desperate, why? Because his daughter is dead, and he makes a bold, faithful request because he believes Jesus can make her alive. Now what we need to understand is that this desperation, which fueled a bold faith step, caused him to step out not giving a rip about what the other Jewish leaders around him would say. Now remember the context. Two messages ago, we saw some of the Jewish leaders saying, murmuring, complaining, this man eats with sinners. Remember that? And then two weeks ago, Pastor Cleet preached on the wineskin teaching, and that's before religious leaders. So when those religious leaders who are in the area saw Jairus come and take a step toward Jesus, I bet they're thinking, yeah, baby, my guy, my guy, my guy. He is about to stump this Jesus, because that's what they're all trying to do with their questions, right? So can you imagine how mortified they must have felt when all of a sudden, Proskuneo, he lays before Jesus. And what's more, can you imagine how shocked they must have been? Their jaws must have dropped to the ground when he actually testifies to the one that he's kneeling before, if you just touch my daughter, she will come back to life. They must have thought, what in the world is going on? This pillar of our community, this ruler of our synagogue, he is kneeling and groveling before this itinerant Jewish preacher, this uh, Jesus of Nazareth. That is some desperate and bold faith, is it not? So what does Jesus say? What does Jesus do? Jesus does what with his faith? He, he does what? He responds to it. Look at the next verse. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. Jesus, we're reminded here afresh, responds to faith. Now, along the way, Jesus is going to encounter a second person, equally if not more desperate, and yet also boldly faith-filled. Look at her in verse 20. First part of the verse. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now, we're just going to call this chronic uterine bleeding. She experienced that for a dozen years, which means if that was today, she'd been experiencing it since 2011. Miserable. Mark tells us that she had suffered at the hands of many physicians. At best, that's medical malpractice. Perhaps there are some worse things that she experienced in pursuing treatment. He tells us that she spent all the money that she had, depleted of her resources, and in the end, she was only 
worse off. And you know what that condition rendered her, by the way? It rendered her unclean in the Jewish system. Unclean. Which means that if she had been married, her husband had probably left her a long time ago. So much for until death do us part. It meant what's even more, she could not enter a place of worship like this, in that case, the synagogue. People didn't want her around. And that translated to life out in society. She was socially and culturally ostracized, this woman. She was isolated. She was alone. She lived in the shadows. She lived on the margin. She lived in the fringes. And what's worse, as one commentator pointed out, unlike the homeless today who walk our streets, who in the main are there because they've made some deliberate choices towards unhealth, we should still have mercy, but he was just pointing out that, she found herself in this circumstance entirely because of circumstances out of her control. She was miserable, she felt shame, unrelenting pain, sickness, and misery. And, 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 and one commentator pointed out, in a sense, she was even worse than Jairus. Jairus, yes, he had lost his daughter, but he still had family around him. She literally had no one. But check out this desperate and bold faith. Somehow she hears about Jesus. And this is what she does. She touches, comes up behind him and touches the fringe of his garment. Now I want you to know how radical an action that was. I want you to know this. Mark tells us that she pressed through the crowd to get to Jesus. And in pressing through the crowd, she walked through three lines of separation. Number one, gender lines. Women did not touch men, especially of all people a rabbi. Then she crosses social lines. Again, she was an absolute outcast. And then number three, she walks across ceremonial lines because everybody knew that if you come out, somehow came into contact with somebody like that, you would be unclean and have to go through a process of cleansing yourself ceremonially. Just a burden and a stigma. But look at what she says in verse 22 to herself. Verse 21, she says to herself, oh, you can just, just imagine what this woman is feeling 12 years isolated, 12 years sick, 12 years full of misery and shame. If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Now, her believing that touching the hem of his garment probably comes from some Jewish uh, superstitions and traditions that were circulating, and it may sound superstitious, but you know what Jesus is gonna do just a moment? He's gonna refine her faith. And I am so encouraged by the fact that even defective faith can be effective faith when it is hoping in Jesus alone. St. Jerome put it this way. Her touch on the hem of his garment was in fact the cry of a believing heart. I, I, I love this, this first point. Both Jairus and the lady had 
desperate and bold faith that caused them to reach across lines despite what others would say. For Jairus, it was a loss of social station and so much more. For her, all that stuff that she had to deal with. And I just want to say to anybody here, if you would become a Christian, you would have to have that kind of faith. Because there's a lot of easy believism out there. Just pray this prayer after me. No, you, you have to come to Jesus saying, Jesus, I believe you died for my sins and you rose again and I want to follow you. I really want to follow you. And you got to be willing to weather what people would say about you for doing him, for, 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 for doing that to actually really following him and not just you know, saying a prayer. You got to be willing to weather what people think about you and, and, and Christian brothers and sisters. We have to weather what people might actually do to us to really follow Jesus, right? But I just want to say to you, as I quoted just a few minutes ago, this man received sinners. And if you would come to him right now in your heart saying, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I deserve judgment, but I thank you that Jesus paid my price on the cross and I want him to be my Lord. He would save you right then and there. So call upon him and be saved. But what I want to focus on and apply this text to is as as believers, how as believers, we need to exercise that same kind of faith. We as believers need to exercise this same kind of faith. Desperate faith. Bold faith. And I just want to ask you a few questions which I think if you honestly square up with will reveal whether you're in a time and season of fatalistic passive, I don't know, faith, whatever you would call that, or true, living, vibrant, expectant faith. Here's three questions. Number one, are you praying to God in ways that other people would never even know about. Like, are you just turning to the Lord? Everywhere you are, everywhere you're going, are you, are you turning to him? Are you calling upon him? Are you casting your cares on him? Are you talking to him? Are you asking him? Are you crying out to God in ways that people might never know? Prayers here, there, and everywhere. Are you? And second of all, on the other hand, am I asking others to pray for me? Do I want that? Do I value that? Do I believe that would make a difference? Do I desire that? Do I ask fellow congregants to pray for me? Do I ask friends, family, spouse, whoever, do I ask other people to pray for me? I think that answer is very revealing. And third of all, and this might be the ultimate benchmark of the level of faith that we have, would be our commitment to corporate prayer. Do I get with others to pray that the Lord of glory would move for his church and for his glory and for our good? I I don't want you to just let these, these questions just kind of fly over your head. I really want you to wrestle with them. I want to wrestle with them. Because I think our answer to those three questions shows the difference between Dead, fatalistic faith, and expectant faith. Now, moving on from desperation to deliverance, verse 22, this is what happens. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, we read it together, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. 
This is so beautiful. Can you imagine the dignity she felt when Jesus spoke directly to her when everyone else would avert their eyes? We give such dignity to people that we see anywhere when we look them in the face and we talk to them directly. He spoke to her directly. And he says, daughter, take heart. Your faith has made you well. And immediately, boom, she is made well. Can you imagine the physical relief she felt? Really, can you imagine the emotional and mental relief that she felt? It is a, such a beautiful scene if you really sit in front of it. And Mark, Mark tells us Jesus did something that at first blush might seem kind of unkind. You know what Mark tells us Jesus did? Jesus makes her own up to touching him in front of everybody. He says, who, who touched me? He knows, but he's trying to get her to step up. And, and Mark tells us she was filled with fear and trembling. And I think we ought to be feared, filled with fear and trembling sometimes in coming to Jesus. He is the Lord of glory. But he's doing that not to be mean. He's actually doing that to refine her faith. He doesn't say, my tassels have made you whole. Your faith in me has made you whole. And he's doing it so that all the company of people there can see that this woman with a dozen years of bleeding has now been made well, and she can be reestablished and, re and brought back into fellowship with other people, which is what salvation does. It is such a beautiful thing. I can't imagine the dignity. And let, let, me, let me add this. I think there's three, three really cool, quickly, gospel brushstrokes right here. Remember that typically when an unclean woman or unclean anyone, a leper, there's various ways in the Old Testament you could be unclean, would touch a rabbi. You know what that rabbi would typically do? So much for a pastoral heart. He would sometimes pronounce a curse on that person and storm away, right? Does Jesus do that? Does Jesus do that? No. <laughs> what does he do? He actually, re he, he receives that touch and he makes her clean, don't you see echoes of 2 Corinthians 5.21 in that? That God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we in turn might become the righteousness of God in him. He receives her sickness and he gives her health while still being 100% sinless. So beautiful, so beautiful. And then I think this, 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 the fact that she's made clean reminds us of expiation. What is expiation? The $10 word for this morning. It's a biblical word. It means cleansing. The Bible says that when we come to Jesus, he cleanses us from our sin. The very things that weigh us down and destroy our lives and destroy relationships and all that. And that's why there's this great doxology in Revelation chapter one. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And I offer up to you right now, 1 John, which says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hallelujah for that. And then this other brushstroke, adoption. Adoption. This is the only miracle on record where Jesus turns to the person who received the miracle and says, daughter, your faith has made you whole. 
What a reflection that when we turn to Christ, we are no longer under the kingdom of darkness. We're in the kingdom of God. And it's not just a kingdom. It's a family. Daughter, it's so sweet. Now, let's, let's move on. I love that. Jesus moves on to the ruler's house after restoring this lady. He arrives, verse 23, and this is what it says. When Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. Now, it's just a really, really weird cultural thing, and I'm sure if the Lord uh, delays his return, they will look back on cultural practices we had. Like, that was really weird. Well, one they had was they actually had paid mourners. Did you know that? Like if you really wanted to show that you were grieving for the loss of your loved one, you would hire some people who would come and wail and carry on and, and mourn. That was their vocation. <laughs> kind of weird, right? Well, when Jesus shows up and says, hey, 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 go away. For the girl is not dead but sleeping, it says they laughed at him. I don't think the immediate family members were laughing because they actually were invested in true, genuine mourning, Right? But I'm guessing those professional mourners, they laugh like they've been doing this for a living. No one's ever coming back, and so they start laughing. Now, when Jesus says what he says, he's not saying, hey, listen, you guys had your diagnosis wrong. She still has a pulse. She's in a coma. Okay, we're just going to give her a little treatment. He's not denying her death, but what he is doing is redefining death. Death. Christian brother and sister, is really just sleeping to our bodies. Because the time is coming when the dead in Christ are going to rise first. The Seventh-day Adventists believe in this heresy called soul sleep. Like we die, we just kind of are in a state of uh, limbo, spiritual coma. No, that's, no. To be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. But there is almost an idea of body sleep. Our bodies go to dust, right, if the Lord delays. But the day's coming when our bodies are going to awaken from the dust of the earth. And Jesus himself, who himself will get up out of the grave as the first fruits of our resurrection, gives a little preview of that coming resurrection, that great getting up day, when he takes her by the hand after getting everybody out, he took her by the hand and the girl arose. Can you imagine the dad here now? His dead, lifeless daughter is now animate, jumping, laughing, doing whatever this little girl would do. And let's be clear. Because he believed that Jesus could do it, Jesus came and guess what? Guess what? He, he what? What did he do? He did it. Why? Because Jesus does what with our faith? He responds to our faith. Now, is the point of this story then to do what a couple at Bethel Church in Redding, California did in 2014? I think they were music leaders at that church, maybe still are. They had a sweet little daughter named Olive die, two years old. And they started a vigil that she would be raised from the dead. In fact, that thing gained some great momentum under the hashtag. Do you remember this? Wake up, Olive. Anybody remember that? It's a big thing. And after four days of her remaining dead, they quietly laid her body to rest. Is the point, though, that we should do what they did there. 
And what is the answer to that? No. No. Now, we're going we're gonna to get into this a little bit in Matthew chapter 10, verse 8, so in a few weeks or maybe a few months, but I don't have time to feel, fully deal with this, but let me just say this. Can God do anything consistent with his character, include raising the dead? Yes, because yes, the day's coming when he's going to raise everyone from the dead. But outside of Jesus in your New Testament, only Peter and Paul ever raised somebody from the dead, and they didn't do it very frequently. It wasn't exactly every day. And there are certain gifts that were called the signs of an apostle, okay? The fact is, the fact is, Jairus' daughter died again, right? He didn't keep on living, did she? She didn't have et eternal physical life at that point. The fact is, there, there's a grave somewhere in, 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 in Palestine where if her bones have not melted to dust through two millennia, you could find them there. So our great hope is not that those that we love will somehow escape physical death. They won't unless the Lord returns right now. We live in a fallen world. But our great hope is that they can escape the curse of eternal death. Separation from Jesus Christ. There's a great quote by commentator Sean O'Donnell. He said, quote, this miracle story is not about how that we should trust that Jesus will save us from an early death or even death itself. Jesus is not some mystical, magical fountain of youth, not some spiritual oil of a lay. No, he's a resurrected savior. This story is just really a miniature version of the great story of our salvation. Jesus took on the curse of death. Now here's this last sentence, it is gold. In the death of Christ is the death of our spiritual death. We can be forgiven of our sin. And in the resurrection of Christ is the death of our physical death. We shall rise again. So this deliverance of Jairus' daughter and this woman with bleeding is just a small reflection of the ultimate deliverance, eternal life in Christ. I close with a quick word on the display that Jesus just put on. Jesus, I think you would agree with me, when he healed, when he raised Jairus' daughter, did he not display his, who he is, his, his, his person? Did he not display his love? Did he not display his, his incredible, merciful, powerful character? When he raised her from, when, 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 first off, when he, I should say, when he healed that, that lady in front of everybody, right? He's showing off his goodness, his glory, right? He's displaying himself. And certainly he did that when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. In fact, the text closes with noting just that, where it says the report of this went through all that district. So friends, brothers, sisters, when we come to Jesus with desperate and bold faith, it is an opportunity for him to display his glory before others as he comes through. It's an opportunity for him to unfurl his glory in a fresh way. Thank you, and we, we, we should acknowledge it when it happens. Thank you for healing my child. Thank you for fixing my marriage. Thank you for freeing me from my anxiety. Thank you for providing that job. 
Thank you for allowing us to have over 500 gospel conversations and baptize not just five, but seven. Thank you for that woman making a U-turn out of the clinic. And we can go on and on. Thank you for healing me from past trauma. When we come to him, it is an opportunity for him to display his glory as he comes through. Now, somebody is thinking, and rightly so, well, what about when he doesn't? Right? Right? Let's not be all pie in the sky. Let's keep it real. What about when he doesn't come through? As I said in the introduction. Because God does not always move when and how we might want him to. Because he knows more than we do, and that is an infinitely, exponentially radical understatement, of course, right? The Lord is always doing a thousand things. We can't see from our little, I don't know how tall are you, perches of five foot, six inches of dust above this massive crust of dust, the earth. But in the face of him, not doing what we want him to do, or not yet, or what we think he should do, what we've asked him to do, in the face of him not moving in the way we want him to, as we continue to love him, as we continue to follow him, as we continue to trust him, all the while crying out, how long, Lord, I can't do this much longer, and all the rest, we show that he is enough. That my flesh and my heart may fail, but God, you are the strength of my heart and you're my portion forever. You see, persevering faith, learning contentment, finding joy even in those hard places, showcases God. It puts him on display in another way, right? It says, God, I love you more than I love a vending machine that's got all my favorite goodies in it while I have a pocket full of change. It says, God, I love you more than I love that $50 Starbucks card until I spend all the money and I bend up that card and throw it on my floorboard or in the garbage. It says, God, I love you because I just love you for you. And it says, with whatever happens, I'm trusting in you, Nicene Creed stuff, for the ultimate deliverance of the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, an everlasting life in the new heavens and the new earth when he returns and behold, makes all things new. That's what it says. So, when we're in that place, when we move from fatalistic passive faith to expectant faith. It doesn't mean he's going to always move the way he's going to move. we want him to move. I will tell you this. I will tell you this. We're living in a dot. This is going to matter for the ages to come. The line. It places you and I in that great chapter of salty saints. Hebrews chapter 11, right? Who with all their warts, and they had a lot of them just like we do, and with all their blemishes, and they have a lot of them just like we do, continued to believe God and therefore glorified him and showed in a world of paper mache and fake believers, they, in point of fact, with all their struggles, were genuine 
believers. It says in Hebrews chapter 13 that they all died in faith, not having received the things promised. They hadn't received them. And yet having seen and greeted them from afar, they acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. But as it is, it says, they desired a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Are you a citizen of the eternal city to come? How do you need to respond to this message this morning? Passively, fatalistically, or do you need to say, Lord, I have let my faith power down into practically dead faith. I've become a deist. I don't even really interact with you. I don't even expect you for anything. Hey, listen, everybody's been there. You might be there right now. Here's what you do. You, 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 you prayed like that one man, another miracle. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And you don't wait for God to zoom some kind of feeling into your heart. You just press into him. You just press into him. And that living faith will grow you in a way that you were not growing when you were just dead and dormant. God will be glorified and you will find more peace and stability than you have right now. Amen?